This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Words of Integration and Guidance by Jonathan Schull. Violence is the means, as all dictators, dictators have known, whereby the few dominate and exploit the many. Nonviolence is the means by which the many can reclaim their rights and advance their interests. Peace begins, someone has said, when the hungry are fed. It is equally true that the hungry will be fed when peace begins. Equality and nonviolence, peace and justice, are inextricably linked, and neither can flourish in the absence of the other. Peace, social justice, and defense of the environment are a triad to pit against the imperial triad of war, economic exploitation, and environmental exploitation. Rejecting a choice between accommodation and violent all-or-nothing revolution, the Eastern Europeans decided upon the incremental pursuit of revolutionary ends with peaceful reformist means, acting on the basis of common principles, yet without any blueprint, they pooled the variegated forces of society to achieve a radical renewal of their political lives. A revolution against violence in the world at large, in imitation of this procedure, would not be the realization of any single plan drawn up by any one person or council, but would develop like open software as the common creation of any and all comers acting at every political level, within as well as outside of government, on the basis of common principles. And now a reading from Scripture, uh, Genesis 22, 1 through 14. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father Abraham, Father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. 
And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its thorns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. The Holy Gospel according to Matthew chapter 10, 40 to 42. Whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive the reward of the righteous. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple, truly I tell you, none of these will lose their reward. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. When I was in high school, I enjoyed playing basketball. Uh, Not that I was very good at basketball. I was, in fact, cut from the JV team. So that's a, a sign that the universe is telling you you're not meant to be a basketball player when you get cut from the junior varsity team, right? Uh, but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. And there were um, these shoes that I wanted. This was when I was in high school some time ago. Can you imagine what those shoes might have been? Air Jordans. Air Jordans. Exactly. I wanted to have a pair of Air Jordans, you know. I don't know if that would help with my three-point game or not, but... Uh, <laughs> But I wanted some Air Jordans, so I saved up, and a friend of mine saved up, and we had enough, and we went to the shoe store and laid down $125 each for a pair of these shoes. Now, I don't spend $125 today on shoes, and this was over 25 years ago, so, you know, that was a lot of money to spend on shoes, and my parents were like, what are you doing spending that money on these shoes? And I'm like, yeah, but these are cool, and my friends, they say these are the best shoes, and I want these shoes, and they're like, well, who cares what your friends say, right? You can do everything that your friends say, and you know what's coming, right? If your friends tell you what? Right. If your friends tell you to jump off a cliff or jump off a bridge, are you going to do it? Okay, mom and dad, right? It's a conversation that's happened countless times. We've all been either on the giving or receiving end of that. Maybe both, some of us. And it's good advice, right? You shouldn't do whatever your friends tell you to do all the time. And when that comes from mom and dad, that's meant well. And often we think, well, if mom and dad tell us to do something, we should probably do that. Though at a certain age, you realize sometimes you take that advice with a grain of salt. But what about when God tells you to do something? Gets a little thornier, doesn't it? We can brush off, well, your friends told you to do that. Okay, maybe temper that. Or even mom and dad told you, so okay, you know, maybe that's good advice, but think about it. But if God tells you to do something, it seems that, well, better listen up. But what about when God tells you to do something that 
we perceive as a terrible thing, a heinous act or someone you care about. It's part of what we're wrestling with in our text this morning as God says to Abraham, take your son whom you love, go up on that mountain and sacrifice him, kill him. Now, of course, if we were reading this story from the Quran this morning, we'd be able to say, well, of course, this is a violent religion. And, you know, we shouldn't be surprised to see that in that text, right? We'd feel like we could distance ourselves from it a little bit and say, well, that doesn't belong to us, right? But it's, we're reading it in the Bible. And if you're a Christian, a person of faith, this is part of the text that we hold as sacred scriptures. And it comes in the very first part of the very first book, right? And so our Jewish friends have to wrestle with this text as well. It shows up in the first book of the Torah, Genesis, or Bereshit in Hebrew. And here is the story that we're confronted with. And that's challenging and difficult. And here's Abraham, right? The father of many nations, called by the Apostle Paul, the father of faith. And he's often lauded for just listening to God, doing what God says. But in this instance, is listening to what God says, is that something to celebrate? And the story, of course, is a masterpiece of biblical literature, right? It's this epic scene, and it's been covered in art throughout the ages, and it's been wrestled with by theologians and philosophers and ethicists. The commentator Everett Fox notes that the story has a terrible intensity and it's so stark as to be almost unbearable. And it comes just one chapter after the birth of the long-awaited son, Isaac. God had promised Abraham many years earlier, go and leave your country and go to this land I'll show you and I'll make you a great nation. And God has promised that he will have children and that his children will have many children and yet here in this very next chapter Everett Fox says the horror to this story lies in the threatened contradiction to what God has been promising before and it's interesting as we look at the story that Abraham seems surprisingly compliant right God says go do this terrible thing and he's silent we don't read about any sleepless night, no bargaining or arguing with God, nothing. Instead, we're given a series of verbs in the next verse. Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men and his son Isaac, chopped the wood, set out, and went to the place. God says go, and he jumps, and he's ready. But it's surprising uh, that Abraham was so unwilling to protest here. Because as we've seen Abraham so far in the book of Genesis, he's been willing to enter into negotiations, to argue, to bargain with relatives, allies, princes and rulers of other people groups, even with God himself. In fact, just a few chapters earlier, God is proposing to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, where his nephew Lot lives. And what does Abraham do? He says, well, God, what if there's 50 righteous people in this town? Are you going to destroy it along with these 50 righteous people? And my nephew Lot? 
And God says, well, okay, if there's 50 righteous people, I'll spare the city. And Abraham says, well, what about 40? God says, okay, 40. Abraham, do I hear 30? 20? 10? Right? He gets God all the way down to 10. I mean, he's not unwilling to argue with God. Right? But here we have this story involving his own son and he's silent. What do you think is happening here? Why is he unwilling to speak up? Any thoughts? One commentator I read said, well, maybe he's too close to the situation. <laughs> Which seems, seems weird in this instance. Well, if it's those people I don't know in Sodom and Gomorrah and my nephew, I'll argue for them. But God's telling me to do something involving my son. God must have an idea or a plan or something. Right? But it's, it's difficult and it's hard to understand what's going on. My friend Phil Snyder says, uh, as he was thinking about this text, he says, wouldn't the actual test of faith be the courage to say no to such violence? He says, I mean, even if God was testing Abraham's faithfulness uh, and wouldn't end up going through with the violence, Abraham was placing faith in what he understood to be a violent God, calling for a violent act. So didn't he fail the test by trusting in God? Wouldn't the faithful act be in protest of such a God? I.e., if you're going to make of me a great nation by using these means, then I'd rather not be a great nation. Thank you very much. I think that's how I would want to see Abraham respond. And I think maybe our modern sensibilities, right, want to see that response out of Abraham. But I think it's helpful to remember the context of the time and the place, right? This story taking place a long time ago, right? Thousands and thousands of years. And in fact, it's before anything such as the people of Israel exist, right? He's the beginning of it. So there's no people of Israel. There's no giving of the law on Sinai yet. So they don't have God's guidance on how they should live. And so this is before all of that. And Abraham is coming from a very polytheistic setting in which there were many gods and in which in the ancient times it's not that surprising when a god says take your child and offer it up to me. So we kind of are like, what is happening? This is impossible. This is terrible. But in that ancient time and place, not that unusual. Not that surprising. And of course, as we say in the United Church of Christ, we believe that God is still speaking. And so this wasn't the final word of God to parents or any parents, hopefully. This was this situation, but God sent prophets who would say many things and say, I'm asking you to live in justice in this way. I'm asking you to be faithful to me in this way. And sometimes the prophets would say things that seem to go against what God had said earlier. And so I think we see sort of what you might call a progressive revelation of what God is saying. And in fact, Jesus in that tradition shows up and says, you have heard it said. Right? A number of times he says, you have heard it said. Love your friends and hate your enemies. But I tell you, hate, love your enemies and do good to those who harm you. 
He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And in fact, he's quoting one of the prophets, even when he says that, that God doesn't want, ultimately, sacrifice, sacrifices. He says, those who live by the sword die by the sword. And so we see Jesus come on the scene and give us a very different portrayal of God and what God might want for us and how we live our lives. But we're still in a bit of a quandary, right? Because these stories, this story is a part of our tradition and stories that help form us, inform us, right? And feed into how we live and the things we value and the things we celebrate. And we live in a nation founded on violence, right? It's a holiday weekend and we're celebrating, right? The 4th of July, but we also recall that with that came a lot of violence even before that initial July 4, uh, as we think about taking of the land, killing of the natives' peoples, uh, nation built on the backs of slaves. And so there's a lot of violence in the history of our nation, and I think our nation continues to exert violence in various forms. In what ways do you see our society, even today, relying on violence? or using violence to support structures of the status quo. Where to begin? Where to begin, okay. How much time do we have? Any examples? There's many forms of violence, isn't there? It's not always bloodshed, but creating policies and structures uh, that harm, that discriminate, uh, that make it difficult for people to have livelihood is a form of violence. Yeah? Against the water protectors. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great example. Anything else? Mandatory sentencing. Mandatory sentencing. Yeah, absolutely. We look at our prison population, our practice of mass incarceration, uh, a lot of violence involved with that. Eminent domain. Okay. Against the environment. Yeah. Now, if it's in the ground, we're going to take it. Violence against the earth. Violence. Yeah. And in turn to us. Right. That's right. That's what we don't understand. Yeah. Absolutely. Is the budget for the military? Yeah. That continues to rise while other things keep going. Right, right. We celebrate a record-setting increase for the military. Celebrate in quotation marks, perhaps, right? But that reflects values, doesn't it? It reflects values and priorities. And we see that other things are not values and priorities. And there is, I think, just this, this narrative of violence that supports all of that uh, and that empire needs and thrives on. Yeah. 
George's, the road rage. You know, we've seen a couple of those right. incidents. You know, where are we getting that from? All the other products. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So how do we begin to resist those things? How do we articulate, embody, live out an alternative way of being? How do we live into a way of peace? The African-American preacher Tracy Blackman uh, was preaching at the UCC General Synod happening this weekend in Baltimore, and she says, Waging peace requires that we stop claiming God just for ourselves and our issues. She says, God is not on our side. God does not take sides. God is simply with us. God is with all of us. Even, she says, when we're not with each other. She says, waging peace will mean stepping off the sidelines and daring to get involved, even though there'll be danger along the way, and even though there may be cost to ourselves. And so perhaps it's not enough simply to say black lives matter, though it should be said. But maybe there needs to be involvement on criminal justice reform, on mass incarceration, on violence against black and brown bodies by our police authorities. Getting involved, stepping in, stepping alongside being a voice. Perhaps it's not enough to say love is love, but to really be an ally, to advocate for equality for our lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender brothers and sisters. Say, why can we still discriminate in Holland based on housing or employment, based on someone's orientation or gender identity? Why can we do that across the state of Michigan? So perhaps it's not enough just to say things, but to get out there and to advocate for policies and to create space where all feel welcome. Maybe it's not enough to say no more war, though it should be said. But perhaps there are ways to get out in the streets and say, we don't stand for this, and this has to stop. Perhaps it's not enough to say, care for the earth. But to think about how am I living my life? How am I consuming? How am I treading or leaving a mark on the environment for good or ill? And am I speaking out or attempting to suggest other ways, other policies that are more earth friendly? And so I think it takes saying and doing, and of course it takes being peace. And it's not easy. The Catholic priest John Deere says, life continually reveals to us how deep our own violence is that lives within us. Right? So not only is there violence out there, there's violence within us. And how do we begin to become people of peace? who exude peace, and who stand for peace. Gandhi said, one person who can express nonviolence in life exercises a force superior to all the forces of brutality. I want to believe that's true. 
But it's hard to believe in a world where we have incredible weaponry, incredible brutality, to imagine that people exuding nonviolence actually possess a greater power. And as Jonathan Shell said in our Words of Integration and Guidance, it doesn't happen all at once, but incremental pursuit of revolutionary ends with peaceful reformist means can begin to turn the tide toward a world of peace. And so when the powers that be ignore the least among us, whether through health care proposals or immigration policies or budgets, perhaps in the face of that, even the simplest act of offering a cup of cold water, as Jesus says in our text this morning, to one of these little ones is an act of defiance, an act of resistance, a way of saying, no, these people matter. And as a follower of Jesus, I'm going to say that and live that and embody that. And so in a world which relies upon violence to solve problems. A world which relies upon violence to get its way. A world which is too quick to wage war. What if we follow Jesus and tried to wage peace instead? Amen and namaste. And now as you go into this holiday weekend with its patriotic displays, its fireworks, and perhaps the flexing of military muscle. May you remember the one who called us, invited us, challenged us to turn the other cheek, to walk the extra mile, to love our enemies as ourselves, and who showed us that true power is found in giving your life away. As you go, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May she cause her face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May she turn her face toward you and give you her peace. Amen. Go in peace. Invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Holland Area Arts Council in downtown Holland. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.